as we continue our study in looking at the subjects of suffering and pain, uh, and, and we're going to be adding to that the subject of grief, I want to begin uh, today by laying a foundation, uh, a theological foundation, uh, for taking a look at that. Author George MacDonald said, Everything difficult indicates something more than our theory of life yet embraces. And so as we face challenges and questions and issues, uh, it's not that there are not answers, it's that we don't have answers sometimes, and sometimes that's because answers have not been given by God, and we're to trust Him. At other times, and more often than we care to admit, uh, we don't have the answers because we are ignorant. We don't know what God has said. And so it is always important for us to begin any study with with a theological look at, at whatever subject we're talking about. And so um, correct theology is, is critical. Uh, and that's true of any subject. It's true of this subject. Thinking about something God's way uh, is essential if we're to, to get it right. It, uh, we don't get to just make it up as we go. We don't get to uh, just pick it up as we go here and there through... Uh, any number of means. Somebody uh, once said that most people get their worldviews the same way they get the measles. Um, they just pick it up somewhere. And that's not a safe way either. Reacting to a situation is a bad plan. It's really no plan at all. And yet oftentimes in life, we are in situations where we haven't thought about it. We don't have a good foundation. We don't know what God says to do. And so we are left with these options, to make it up, to react, or to just go with whatever we picked up here or there. These approaches will certainly lead us to wrong conclusions because ideas have consequences. And Romans 3, 4 tells us, Indeed, let God be true, though every man a liar. When we approach subjects like pain, suffering, and grief, especially when we are personally experiencing those, feeling those ourselves, when we are in the midst of the storm, then we are not in a good position at that point to evaluate their meaning. When my toe hurts, it has all of my attention, and I am likely to overlook many other things. I personally know, remember, and you too, almost nothing about everything. I cannot see very far ahead of me. I can't see very far behind me. I can't see very far, period. I have a very limited perspective. We need, then, an objective, not simply a subjective perspective. Our limited experience is not sufficient to supply us with trustworthy answers. And I'm always suspicious, though sympathetic, with anyone who comes along with just a personal experience as the basis for what they know. Uh, Right now we're talking about grief and suffering and pain, and certainly there are things we learn having gone through those. That is going to be one of the important elements that the Bible teaches us. But if someone comes along and says, I died and I went to heaven and I came back, and now I'm going to give you the testimony of what I experienced, 
Uh, if that is not consistent with what God's word says, what, which one are you going to take? Which, whose word are you going to take? Uh, someone's personal experience or what God has said about life after death? And I think that illustrates the dilemma. The problem is our personal experiences sometimes, perhaps even often, are not trustworthy. And even if they are, they're certainly not as trustworthy as when God speaks. And so all things have to be examined in the light of the word of God, including my own personal experiences. And so uh, we are always driven back to the fundamentals. What do we actually know and how do we know it? Sound theology is foundational to sound practice. The truth matters. It is a road map that tells us where we are and where we're going. God has revealed some of what he knows to us. And so I'm going to begin here today. I just made this list uh, this week as I was thinking about this. Uh, a convenient uh, number of ten, ten things that we do know. And this is cursory. We could go into great detail on every one of these. Perhaps we could add ten more things or fifty more things. But when we come to the subject of pain and suffering and grief, here are ten things that as believers, because God has told us, these are the things we do know. We don't know everything. We can't know everything, but we do know some things, and we know them with certainty. Number one, we know that God is utterly trustworthy and is able to show us what we need, what we need to know. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, that is teaching, for, uh, for correct, reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be complete. Thoroughly equipped for every good work. We know that. We know that the Bible is sufficient to take care of those needs. We know from Isaiah 40, verse 8, The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. We know that. Number two, we know that everything, including my pain, my suffering, my grief, my experiences in life, me, myself, that all things, everything is centered in Jesus Christ. By Him, all things were created that are in heaven and are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through, through Him and for Him. That includes me. Does that matter? When I'm going through some difficulty, you bet it does. So, and so, of course, this not only includes you, it includes your loved ones and everything else. Number three, we know that he is in control of all things, that he is sovereign. In Daniel chapter 4, verse 35, and again, we could multiply these verses over and over and over. But Daniel 4.35, all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? We know that. 
We know that. Number four, we know that we are valued and loved by God and that he is paying attention to the details of our lives. Sometimes we might not feel like that's the case. But we also know our feelings can be wrong. Because God has said that's not true. Jesus said, are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your Father's will. But the very hairs of your head are numbered. Do not fear, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. And we read in Romans 8. A little bit longer passage here, but an important passage, again, in answering the question, what are some things we know? It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. That's how we know He cares for us. He's praying for us. He's interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long, we are accounted as sheep for the slaughter, yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither life, neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We know that. Number five, we know that God created us, specifically, personally. For you formed my inward parts, you covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well, my frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed, and in your book they were all written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. From Psalm 139. Number six, we know that God is all wise. Romans 11, 34-36, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and His ways, past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become His counselor? Or who has first given to Him, and it shall be repaid to Him? For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. God is all wise. He knows what He's doing. Number seven, we know that God is all-powerful. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. Proverbs 21.1. And in Second Chronicles 20, verse 6, o, o Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven, and do you not rule over the kingdoms of the nations? And in your hand is there not power and might, so that no one is able to withstand you? God is all-powerful. We know that. Number eight, we know that God has a plan that includes our good. 
Remember Joseph telling his brothers, but as for you, you meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. So when we're in crisis, when we are in grief, when we are in sorrow, when we are in pain, what is God doing? What is he up to? Is he going to bring good out of this? And if so, how and what? There are innumerable things going on. Joseph didn't know what all God was doing. He didn't know the details. He didn't know how he was working in Pharaoh or in the, in the prison or with Potiphar's wife and uh, with his brothers and with his father and with you know, just countless other details, all of which had to come together in order to accomplish God's good purpose. And, of course, we know that God works together for good, to, uh, all things together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. You know that, right? That's something you can put your feet on. That's a foundation. That's something you can stand on. Now, do I know how he's going to do it? No, I don't. I don't know the details. It's too big of a, it's too big a job for me. I can't know that. But I can know this. Number nine, we know that even the difficult things are under his direction. Exodus 4.11, so the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Or who makes the mute, the deaf, the seeing, the blind? Have not I the Lord? Amos 3.6, if there is a calamity in a city, will not the Lord have done it? And number 10, we know that God has promised to comfort us in our suffering. Now, that's not a promise, promise that that will happen instantaneously. And so, like many things in life, there is a process. There is a, uh, these things take place in time as we walk with God. And so, as we have fears and doubts and concerns and anxiety, there's all kinds of other instruction we're not even looking at as to what we should do and how we should do it and and if we'll follow those, we find that they begin to take hold. But in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. We know that. We know this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble, with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. Now, if we are afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effective for enduring the same sufferings which we also suffer. Or if we are comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. And our hope for you is steadfast. Because we know that as you are partakers of the sufferings, so also you will partake of the consolation. Now, that is, those are just ten things as Christians, if we go to the Word of God, ten things we know. And we could take, each, again, each of those ten and say much more about each of those, much more. We could do entire lessons on each of those. So we're just scratching the surface on those ten, 
And we actually know many more things than ten. Remember, the Bible speaks both directly and indirectly about everything. Sometimes it's quite direct about what God is doing, and other times things like the fact that God is all-wise is not directly addressing my personal situation, but it certainly has enormous application. So when, as Jerry Bridges points out in his book, Trusting God Even When Life Hurts, he said there are three doctrines, for example, that together, that come together to sustain us and enable us to trust God. Number one, God is all-powerful. Number two, God is all-wise. Number three, God loves us. Now, if you take out any one of those three, there's not much comfort. If God's all-powerful and all-wise, but he doesn't love us, that's not much good. If he loves us and he's wise, but he's not all-powerful, that doesn't help much. If he's powerful and he loves us, but he's not wise, then that's not comforting. But that's why we need a, a solid foundation of what the Bible teaches about who God is, what he's like. Knowing God is critical here. Not just knowing about God, but knowing him, knowing his character, is what enables us to trust him when we can't see very far. And if we think of these kinds of things, for example, these ten things as points on a road map, I say, here I am, now I need to get the map out and kind of put myself in some perspective. You know, when you go to Six Flags or one of those places and they got the maps up and there's a little X, you are here. Okay? Well, the Bible does that for us. In fact, I saw one of those once that I loved. It was actually... Uh, Jonah was inside of a whale, and he, he hit a light, a, a mat, He lit a match, and there was a map on the inside of the whale, and it was a silhouette of a whale, and there's a little X right in the belly, and it says, you are here. Um, well, sometimes that's us. We're in the belly of the whale. It's awfully dark inside there, um, and we don't know where we are, what's going on. But God's Word tells us some of what's going on, gives us some perspective about Things gives us the bigger picture, if you will, that that gives us some real help. Now, continuing with this idea of the theology, I want to mention a few other things. Uh, I was uh, thinking about our confession of faith, which is remember the confession is, takes uh, men who study the Bible and put together statements on different topics. We have an entire chapter, chapter five of the Westminster Confession, on the subject of providence. And I want to look at the first three paragraphs. They're fairly short. But if we think about how much truth is contained just in these three short statements uh, regarding the, the issues of suffering and pain and grief. So let me just read these three to you. Paragraph one. God, the, the great creator of all things. Uh, what I love about the confession too, it's packed. If we could, again, take this, we could unpack every little phrase. Every idea is a big idea, kind of crammed into a small space here. God, the great creator of all things, does uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things from the greatest even to the least, by his most wise and holy providence, according to his infallible foreknowledge, and the free and immutable counsel of his own will, 
to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. Wow. There's a lot of comfort in there. And if you're interested in taking these uh, and taking all the scripture verses that are attached to these statements, to be happy to, if you don't have a copy of the confession that has all the, the biblical text to support these statements, I'd be happy to, to get you one. Second paragraph. Although in relation to the foreknowledge and decree of God, the first cause, all things come to pass immutably and infallibly, yet by the same providence, he orders them to fall out according to the nature of second causes, either necessarily, freely, or contingently. So what he's saying is sometimes God does things directly, and sometimes he does them indirectly. Sometimes he brings other people and other situations to bear to bring about his purposes. But those are the second causes, that he's behind those. Okay, So, for example, we're talking about Joseph. Potiphar's wife is a second cause. Part of God's plan to take Joseph, clearly, uh, to prison to learn some things and to serve him in that place before he was exalted to the high place in Pharaoh's court, but Potiphar's wife was a secondary uh, cause of his winding up in prison. You intended it for evil, but God intended it for good. The third paragraph, which is, is one sentence, God in his ordinary providence makes use of means, yet is free to work without, above, and against them, at his pleasure. Remember, he is all-powerful. He can do it many ways. I think that's, for example, why in the New Testament we see when Jesus heals people, he doesn't just do it in one way. He, uh, sometimes he speaks, sometimes he touches someone. Uh, on one occasion he spit, and then he spit twice. Uh, he, uh, he can heal from a distance. Uh, he can touch the hem of his garment. God is not going to be put in a box. He's God. He can do it however he wants to. He's that powerful. Now, that I would commend to you is, is bearing further study and examination and, and meditation about those statements. I think they're very helpful on this subject. The Heidelberg Catechism, I think all of you are familiar, or most of you are familiar with the first question, but I also want to look at two other questions in the Heidelberg uh, what is your only comfort in life and in death? That I, with body and soul, both in life and in death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, but we just stopped right there. Is that comforting? Is that helpful when you're going through pain and suffering? Through grief? It, it isn't helpful if you ignore it. It isn't helpful if you don't know it. But if you know it, and you say, but I really, uh, and maybe I need to emphasize something here. The idea here is, is not to say that we don't grieve. The Bible is clear that we do. Jesus wept. Jesus grieved. We grieve. We hurt. We really hurt. That's pain. We suffer mental anguish. Uh, there, all those things are real. There's no attempt here to gloss over them or deny them. It is the, what's called for is that they be put in perspective. They're not just out there by themselves. And what we're not permitted to do as believers is to be 
overtaken by them, which is easy to have happen. We are humans. We are sinful. We are frail. We often don't know all the things we need to know. And so I'm not in any way suggesting this is easy. In fact, I suggest that it is really a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. So I belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood is satisfied for all my sins and redeemed me from all the power of the devil and so preserves me that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, that all things... All things must work together for my salvation. Wherefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live unto him. Again, a very packed statement. Questions 27 and 28 of the Heidelberg. What do you understand by the providence of God? The answer, the almighty, everywhere present power of God, whereby, as it were by his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth with all creatures, and so governs them that herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, Riches and poverty, indeed, all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Question 28. What does it profit us to know that God created and by his providence upholds all things? Answer, that we may be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity. And for what it's, and for what is future, have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that no creature shall separate us from His love, since all creatures are so in His, are so in His hand that without His will they cannot so much as move. Now there's some powerful truth and comfort in these words. Jerry Bridges writes, No one can act outside of God's sovereign will or against it. Centuries ago, Augustine said, Nothing therefore happens unless the omnipotent wills it to happen. He either permits it to happen or he brings it about himself. Philip Hughes said, Under God, however, all things are without exception fully controlled, despite all appearances to the contrary. Nothing is too large or small to escape God's governing hand. The spider building its web in the corner and Napoleon marching his army across Europe are both under God's control. And so, as God's rule is invincible and incomprehensible, his ways are higher than our ways, Isaiah 55, 9. His judgments are unsearchable and his paths beyond tracing out. The sovereignty of God is often questioned because man does not understand what God is doing. Because he does not act as we think he should. We conclude, therefore, that he cannot act as we think he would. 
God is called the one in Ephesians 1.11 who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Let me just say something. If that's not true, then God is not God. That's not a God you can trust or follow. So if God exists, if the God of the Bible exists, then he is utterly trustworthy and he's utterly in control. Everything that happens fits in accord with and in harmony with his plan. This means that God's plan includes little things. Sometimes people have this mistaken notion that, oh, God, God's in charge of the big things, but the little things, he's not. But, of course, big things are made up of lots of little things. Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but the disposal thereof is from the Lord. Ultimately, there are no accidents. His plan also includes bad things. Psalm 60, verse 3, You have made your people see hard things. You have given us wine to drink that made us stagger. It was a poetic way of saying, You brought some really bad things to pass upon your people. And of course, God was chastising them or teaching them or in some other way moving them Toward a, toward a goal of repentance or restoration or something of that nature. Suffering, then, is not outside God's plan, but is rather a part of it. In Acts chapter 4, verse 27 through 28, the Christian disciples prayed to God this, For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose to determine before to be done. Jesus' suffering and death was a great act of injustice, but it was also a part of the set plan of God. And so one of the things that's important for us to see in this subject is that God is in the trouble. Paul saw God in his troubles. He wrote in Philippians 1.13, My chains are in Christ. That's how God wants us to look at trouble also. When trouble comes, many Christians react in ways that reflect fundamentally non-Christian views. If asked, most of us would acknowledge that God is involved in our troubles. We know enough to, to give the right answer. But when push comes to shove and when we are faced with a devastating trial of one sort or another, our kind of practical atheism, or at best our deism, rises to the surface. I kind of think of one of the old cowboy movies when, you know, somebody's, uh, you wouldn't see it in too many modern cowboy movies, but, you know, the cowboy, the guy, the good guy is backed in a corner by all the bad guys, and so then... He's out of bullets, and the bad guys are closing in. Then he prays, God, if you're not too busy up there, I could sure use some help right now. And that's kind of the way we are sometimes, is we think God is aloof or not engaged or not aware or not uh, in any way a part of what's going on. And so all the rhetorical whys and bitter complaints, the hand-wringing, self-pity, and even anger, and the coming apart at the seams demonstrate a focus on self that effectively excludes God, at least for the moment. And I always say, anytime we sin, whatever the sin is, uh, 
We can sin in good times and we can sin in bad times. We can sin when it's just a regular day. And every time we do, we, we forget God. We put him out of the picture. We take him out. We say, we're going to do this on our own. Paul viewed trouble quite differently. His bonds, he declared, were not placed on his wrist by the Jews who accused him, nor did he consider them Roman bonds. He wrote about the bonds of Christ. And it was because Jesus Christ wanted him in bonds. That was the bottom line on his trouble. And so if you're facing trouble, whatever kind, financial, sickness, persecution, or some other hardship, and if you must ask why, then don't make it simply a rhetorical question. Are you willing to hear Paul's answer? If so, then you too will be able to reply resoundingly in true biblical fashion. I am in trouble because Christ wants me in this trouble. Now, in some cases, I'm in trouble because my own sin got me in that trouble, in which case he wants me in that trouble as to teach me not to sin. In some cases, it's somebody else's sin. In some cases, I don't know all the reasons, except that I do know he wants me here. Now, this viewpoint is rare even among Christians, but Paul was, of course, a rare person Here is one reason why he responded to trouble as a Christian should. That's what made him rare. That's enough to make anyone stand out in this world of every other sort of response. His was a providential view of life. He saw God in the problem, and that is what makes the difference. Trouble takes an entirely different perspective then. And it's not, uh, it not only becomes endurable, but it begins to make sense, and it even begins to take on meaning and purpose. This providential view opens up new and different ways of handling trouble. And that's why it's altogether necessary for you to understand and acquire such a view. According to God's uh, excuse me. So what we want to do then, and I'm going to wrap up with just this last point here, is learning to acknowledge God's providence in the midst of the trouble. What is providence and how should it affect your view of trouble? Providence means that God is actively working in history, even those events that we label as trouble. Such events are not exceptions in God's providence in which he turns his back and somehow allows history or the circumstances to run their course. They are part of his active work by which he brings to pass what ultimately will issue into his own glory and the blessing of his people and the church. When all is said and done, there remain two and only two views of God in history. Either... God makes mistakes, or God, in ways we do not fully understand, providentially directs every phase of history, including our personal history, including trouble, toward his own good goals, which will be reached in his time and his manner. Paul most emphatically opted for the latter view and just as surely flatly rejected the first. Belief in God's providence, then, will make an enormous 
difference in your attitude toward trouble. While it's entirely proper to label the trouble as trouble, it's altogether wrong to see it as only trouble. That's not all that it is. A providential view affirms that there is also meaning and purpose in the trouble. That in fact, that in fact, it's but a means to realize that purpose even when your nose is pressed too tightly against the trouble for you to at that moment discover the purpose. Belief that God providentially sustains and directs historical events and personal events is what makes it possible to follow the Apostle Paul's directions to pray and give thanks rather than to worry about trouble. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God and the peace of God which surpasses understanding, will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. I think that's one of those passages that's easy for any of us to just dismiss. To say it, I've heard it, heard it many times, but to stop and think about it and to do it and believe it, that's a different matter. I'm anxious. Then stop. How do I stop? Pray. And as you pray, start with thanksgiving. It's hard to be thankful when I'm in trouble. But you have a lot to be thankful for. You belong to Christ. He's bigger than your problems. He's bigger than you. He's in control. He loves you. He's wise. He's powerful. All those things we talked about at the first, there's a lot to be thankful for. But I still don't understand why this is happening. Well... Let your request be made known to me. Pray to me. Talk to me. I'm the one that is in charge. Then the peace of God, which will even go beyond your understanding, will guard you. You say, I still don't understand, but I trust you. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, for he trusteth in thee. Cast all your cares upon him. Why? Because he cares for you. I will never leave you or forsake you. No one can snatch you out of my hand. We See, there's a whole, whole other list of things we know if we'll take time to learn them and remember them and actually act upon them when the time comes. Father, we thank you for your word. It does not leave us in the dark, but gives us knowledge and hope so that we might face the situations in life uh, not like the world, but like those who have eyes of faith to see beyond the moment, beyond the circumstances, and to place our trust in you. Help us to do these things. In Jesus' name, amen.